This is Other Voices. We're listening to varied views from local people who might otherwise not be heard. I'm Melissa Hale Spencer, editor of the Altamont Enterprise. I'm talking to Hetty McKinley, who grew up in Vienna, Austria, the only child of poor storekeepers. When Hetty was 18, she and her parents were turned out of their home by Nazis on Kristallnacht. Yet Hetty survived and prospered and has spent decades working to make the world a better place. She taught for years at the University at Albany while also maintaining her own practice and publishing scholarly articles. She regularly wrote a mental health column for the Enterprise and became a radio personality giving no-nonsense advice. She will turn 100 on April 15th. Happy birthday and congratulations. What I'd like to just walk through your life, if we can start at the very, very beginning. Just tell us a little about um, your childhood and growing up in Austria, if you would. Um, Well, (laughs) many years to think about. I was born in Vienna, Austria. And uh, many people are not sure when I say Austria that I don't mean Australia, but I do mean Austria, a little country next to Germany and Switzerland, and Vienna is its capital. Um, We were poor. Uh, My parents ran a little store, and um, for some reason we didn't have to pay for my private school. Oh, I know, because my father paid with merchandise like chickens and geese and eggs and butter. My guess is you you were a very good student. Is that true? Yes, I I was. I find it difficult to believe now that I can't remember anything, but I was a very good student. I remember you told me once that at age 10, you won a prize in a citywide essay contest, and the subject was bread, and you wrote about it both in the literal sense and the metaphoric sense, which I guess for a 10-year-old was pretty exceptional. You know, I haven't thought about that in all these many years, and you remembered. That's true. I wish I had that article would be nice to have. I don't have anything, really. So that's right, bread. Yeah, staff of life. So tell me a little about um, how events unfolded for you. I know it was very difficult in Austria once the Nazis occupied it. Yes, it certainly was. We lost everything. Um, They... um, came to the door of our apartment by they I mean 15 year old boys in Nazi uniform and said out and that was it that meant uh, they we no longer had an apartment my father lost his store I really don't know how we managed because uh, it's a long time ago how we uh, got through I left first, and I don't really know how my parents managed because we never, ever talked about these terrible times. And we all went to England and got jobs in uh, 
families. Um, you know, uh, my father got a job as a butler. Not that he knew. <laughs> I can just think of my father as a butler. But my mother was a fantastic cook. So that made up for everything. Well, I remember, too, you told me how you were so clever. You had gone to the library, which you loved, and as, as a child, and then as a young woman, a teenager, had looked up in the phone book, um, a London phone book, to find names that you thought might be Jewish, so that when the Nazi, when the Kristallnacht came and you were thrown out, you had some contacts and some places where you could go and, and begin work and a new life in England. Oh, yes. Baba reminds me. You know, so many things happened that you can't believe they happened. Um, we had a Chinese neighbor at a little grocery store, I think, and he went to the bank and put up the money that I needed um, in order to get the affidavit to go to England. Um, you can't imagine how complicated and awful it was, but uh, it all ended well. My parents left eventually, and here I am, 100 years old. Yes, that's... That's remarkable. Well, tell tell us a little about your father. I know um, he seemed like a remarkable man, and he too lived to be very old, into his 90s. But if you could just tell us a little about him. Yes, my father was a prisoner of war in Russia in the First World War. And um, at one point... The prison opened its doors, just opened the doors and said, go. And there they were in Russia. And uh, if you have an idea how how far Russia is from Austria, it's pretty far. And he set out to walk home. It took him two years to walk home from Russia to Austria. If you look at the map, it's a long, long, long walk. And he would stop at people's um, homes, knock at the door and ask for food. Um, and uh, his wife uh, had kept the store going in Vienna, and he came back, uh, eventually came back to his wife, and I was born uh, a year or so later. What a remarkable man. And I know you said that he had just a great, sense of humor that when he got to the United States, um, a theater owner would give him free tickets to to the theater because he would laugh. <laughs> and his laughing was contagious. It's amazing that you remember things. Uh, and I, although it's my life, I didn't remember that at all. That's very true. And I can yeah. still hear that laugh. It was a very infectious and very natural, uh, uh, booming laugh. <laughs> Isn't that strange? Yeah. And also, he was an artist, because I remember you had in your home in Altamont um, pictures, very vibrant pictures that he had drawn. I think he he became, he became came to art late in his life. Is that right? He, 
I'm looking at uh, the picture. I don't know how uh, he uh, had never taken a lesson or had any idea about drawing, but he did draw a picture which is called the Garden of Eden. Looking at it now, it is really fabulous. <laughs> I mean, um, nothing is looks uh, normal, but it, it's a terrific picture of Adam and Eve without clothes and some weird animals, a bear and a, a lion and what have you. Um, so um, um, I really should start thinking where the, where that picture should go. Um, because uh, it, I think it's very special. Anyway, I wish you could see it, and maybe you can. No, I have seen it. I remember it really well. It was the animals were all paired, sort of like they're in Noah's Ark, right? They're pairs of animals in a, in a way. Yeah, in a way. Yeah. And Eve has this lovely cascading dark hair. And I think you told me once that all his women look like you. That you know, he would paint his daughter into his pictures. All the women um, were meant to look like me, but of course I didn't look anything like them. But uh, yes, he had, of course, no models or no anything to, uh, and uh, didn't learn how to draw or paint. So this is quite remarkable. If that goes into the right hands, I think this picture, this particular picture, could have an interesting life um, after my death. Well, I'd like to hear about your life when you came to America. I, I'm, you know, how how you found your way here, and um, you became, I think, a student at Columbia University. Is that right? You got your yeah. Yes, that's uh, true, and of course I haven't thought about these things. I came here, and I had I had an uncle here. Um, this particular uncle jumped ship when he was 15 or 16. He was now maybe 60, 70, 80, whatever, my uncle Hinterberger. And he came and picked me up from whatever... Um, I don't know what I came with, and his famous words in German, of course, were, are you here again? Because um, I had never been here. And uh, I <laughs> stayed with my uncle, who had rooming houses, very, very crummy in the 70th Street. Now this is a very fancy area in New York. But at that time, it was um, pretty run down. So he had three rooming houses, and I lived there, and uh, I acquired the cat. So that was my life. And worked as a waitress in a place called Eatwell for a long time. So as you were working as a waitress at Eatwell, you were also going to night classes, is that right, at Columbia? Yes eventually and I don't quite know now how I paid for the Columbia classes was pretty expensive and uh, as far as I know I never got a scholarship of any kind so I uh, went to night classes and I um, um, I guess I picked up English I picked up the language uh, partly from going to the movies during the day, movies were 40 cents or 50 cents, and a good way to learn the language. 
Um, so um, haven't learned any more since. Well, so how did you find your way to social work when you were studying? What was it that drew you to that as a career? I had a cousin who had become, uh, who was a social worker. I don't know whether she became a social worker here or not, or had been. So she was a role model for me, and she was also willing to to support me. And through her, the idea of social work, uh, I had never known what a social worker was. People used to think that a social worker came and looked under the beds and uh, looked for missing husbands and such. Um, so um, because of her, I became a, a social worker. I really wanted to be a psychiatrist, but, uh, you know, that meant would have meant uh, medical school and there was no way I could go that way. And I'm glad I didn't because nowadays, um, you probably know, psychiatrists spend their lives writing medications and very little time talking to patients. Um, So anyway, um, what else can I tell you? Well, what sustained you in that field? Because it's a very difficult field, I would imagine. And you used a lot of the skills I would think a psychiatrist would use because you talk to people about who they are and what their problems are and how to solve them. So what what was it that kept you at it, kept you, <laughs> kept you working in that field? Yeah, as far as I remember, way back in my own life, um, for some reason, I wanted to, quote, help people. Um, I don't quite know how that came because my parents weren't into helping anybody. I mean, they couldn't afford to be helping anyone. Uh, But that's what I wanted to do, help people. And uh, as I mentioned, uh, uh, my cousin Elsa was a social worker which I didn't know existed. And uh, so that's that's how I got into the field uh, of social work, uh, which uh, is a strange field because um, um, I don't know whether, you know, it's really, it isn't a field at all. It's between psychiatry and psychology and good sense or, uh, or bad sense. Yes, and you have a lot of common sense. I always admired your columns because lots of people with, you know, degrees end up uh, sort of esoteric, and you always had very straightforward advice. And looking at some of your research, um, you just did interesting research on a wide variety of topics. One of the articles of yours that I had read was on the importance of nurses and social workers setting aside their professional armor, you called it, and being human in the face of suffering. Can you just tell us a little about that philosophy? I see, I see. I wrote that. Yes, you did. (laughs) But that seems to me your approach. You were always so direct when you wrote those columns for us. It was... um, you know, like you were sitting across the kitchen table with you and talking as opposed to like a, some kind of a 
esoteric setting. Another thing I found a story, an article that you had published in the 1970s in um, the Health and Social Work Journal that looked at, uh, you called it the death of sexual expression in nursing homes. And you wrote the, the, the death of sexual expression in nursing homes. Um, you wrote, you wrote, although the calming effects of physical closeness are well known, we hold crying babies, hug upset children, embrace sick adults. Older persons have hardly any pleasurable physical contact. And you also wrote, persons in nursing homes must abide by a set of unrealistic rules and are targets of prejudice and punitive morality. And I've been thinking about it now because here we are in the time of coronavirus where, you know, we can't be together. And I talked to a priest last week, um, you know, who was saying he can't hold the hand of a person who's dying. He can't be physically with the parishioners that he looks after. And here you were back in the, in, in the 1970s, you were writing about the importance of that physical contact. I just wonder if you have any thoughts on that now, you know, the importance of of physical expression of of who we are. Well, I, I have thought, as you mentioned it, that uh, um, as the years go by, life goes on, we really, um, I think, are moving away from physical expression. I think that uh, there's so many gadgets and things that we can use instead. Um, I can't imagine having a physical anything with a client, you know, uh, mm-hmm. not even perhaps putting my hand on the client's hand. Um, that has gone out, uh, uh, I believe. Don't you think that? Uh- I do, yeah. I think that has. And for school teachers, too, um, they're just afraid to touch their students now, <laughs> you know. Um yeah. Right. Yeah. Another uh, thing that you were an advocate for, um, what most of us would consider in your old age, except now you've, you're here still 20 years later, but about um, maybe 15 or 20 years ago, I remember talking to you. You were a very uh, strong advocate about people being able to make choices about their death. Um, you know, about their death, choices about how they wanted to die and having it be on their own terms. That was something that you were a very strong advocate for. So I still I still feel very strongly that people should have a say about that. Um, and so often they don't. Um, they just get pushed into a situation. Um, my goodness, you remember so many things much about my life than I do. Well, your life is just a fascinating life. Um, There's so many topics that you touched on over the years in the columns in our paper that always gave me food for thought. Um, One of them was about religion. Do you have any 
thoughts at, at this juncture in your life about uh, religion, either for you or for us as a society? My father was a socialist, and I don't know what that means now, uh, certainly not in terms of this country, but uh, it meant something. In Austria, there was such a thing as a socialist uh, party. Anyway, um, he had been in World War One, and uh, that made him very irreligious, if you can imagine. Mm-hmm. And... Um, uh, let's see, how, how did you, you ask me a question, I already lost it. No, you have, you're, I think you're giving me a sense of your own upbringing and the, that your father had, your father had rejected religion, you were saying, which is a relevant point. Yeah, yeah. My father was similar. You always hear the phrase, there are no atheists in foxholes. But my father, it was the World War II for my father that uh, made him reject the idea of religion as well. So I just wondered, too, if you could tell us a little about um, your life now, what it's, what it's like to be 100 years old. Um, what, just if oh, you could just... Boring. Dis- <laughs> Ah, okay. Um, So you're living in Beverwick now, is that right? Yeah. And so, like, what does a typical day consist of there? What, like, what's, uh, what kind of things? Well, I'm not happy with my uh, typical day. And I'm waiting for the weather to be uh, a lot better. But um, where I live, two minutes from here, is a lot of green stuff, you know, trees and benches mm-hmm. and such. And mm-hmm. uh, so they can go for walks. Um, but um, at the moment, uh, I think there's not much um, getting together of the people here. Everybody is worried about uh, infecting each other and uh, what have you. So... Um, well, I think boring is uh, a good description. It's a hard time for everybody, I think, but especially in a place where you're not having visitors and, you know, normal activities. I know you're a traveler. Do you have any travel plans on the horizon for when this is over? And what would that be? Well, my plan has been, and I hope uh, will continue to be, to go back to Austria in uh, November, it seems that, uh, or September, um, August, uh, they told me, was a very, very busy touristy time in Austria, Mm -hmm. and um, not to come in Austria if possible. Um, I don't quite know. I'm asking myself, why do I want to go back to Austria? Um, I like the food, I tell you that. Uh, Have you ever been to um, any of the European countries? I am embarrassed to tell you I am not a world traveler. I have admired your travels, but no. I studied studied in England um, for a while, but no. I have never been to Austria, although I think it would be lovely. When was the last time you were there? Not too long, um, maybe yeah. three years ago, um, and uh, that was very nice. Uh, I stayed uh, in 
well, there was this one hotel that I knew very, very well, a small little hotel. Uh, I stayed there, and there were still people who remembered me from way back, like way back. And this one woman was still a waitress there, and I was thinking, oh, my God, she has been carrying dishes all these years in this place where I have gone to another continent and done this and that. Uh, so many things stayed the same, and the food in Austria certainly stayed the same. And it's not everybody's cup of tea, so to say. It's very, very rich uh, food in Austria, rich and greasy and creamy. Mm-hmm. That sounds delicious. So, <laughs> <laughs> so what are what are your plans for? April 15th, your 100th birthday. What's happening then? Nothing's happening for my 100th birthday, I think, which is pretty soon. Um, I don't know, and it doesn't matter in a way. Um, uh, I find it, in a way, kind of humorous that I made it to 100, and uh, nobody else, I think none of my friends... um, did and um well it's difficult i i don't know um i'd like to see the world change more than anything else but that's not going to happen um when i was 8 years old i uh tried to understand that people fight about praying to different gods. That seemed very weird. Do you know what I'm saying about this? Uh, shall I explain? Yes, explain. People um, uh, people pray to different gods. The Protestants, mm-hmm. the Jews, the Catholics, the uh, Muslims. And that seemed so strange that they kill each other because the other person prays to a different god. And when I say that, now it seems as ridiculous as before, doesn't it? It does. It does. When you think of it, um, I think I could understand some uh, misunderstanding between people who believe in God and people who don't believe in God, but a different God is okay with me. Why should I care that your God... Is different from my God. I can't imagine. So anyway, I don't know how we got onto that. Well, no, I think that's a very important and profound thought. You were saying you'd like to see the world change, but you don't think it will. But is that what you're talking about? You'd like to see people more accepting of others' beliefs? Yes, I certainly do. Um, I don't see killing people. Yeah, which is what war seems to be about. Not that I believe that. I think wars have economic basis. Um, yes, I um, I can't see people killing people. I've been like this since I was eight years old. I cannot understand killing somebody else who has a different belief. You know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I can see 
killing someone who stole something from me that I can understand. But somebody thinking of a different God, why should I care about that as long as they don't intend to kill me? Um, over that issue. Anyway, how did we get into that? Our time is almost up, and I'm wondering if you have any closing thoughts or advice for people as we end the podcast. Well, yes, I I mean, if I were somewhere else um, in my bed or someplace, I'd have lots of advice. I uh, think that if we could, if we could get rid of what is envy, you, you know, I don't know what envy means, means to you, but I think envy brings about terrible things. Um, the idea that you have something I don't have, and why don't I have it, uh, I think has brought about more death than anything else. Uh, and I wish we could get rid of that idea uh, that it doesn't matter that you have more than I have. Uh, but I don't know that this will ever happen in the uh, age of advertising, which builds on that. Um, if you try hard, you can get what I have. You know what I mm-hmm. mean? Mm-hmm. I do know what you mean. And I think that's important advice, too. Um, I I don't know how we do away with envy, the green monster, but um, it's something to strive for. Well, thank you so much, and I wish you a happy birthday, and um, I just appreciate that all you've shared, not just today, but all through these many years. You've shared so much of yourself and so much of your helpful wisdom so thank you it was wonderful to talk to you and to know you and i hope um, when all this is over we could meet for a cup of hot chocolate or something (laughs) that would be yes we have a date that would be wonderful thank you so much okay goodbye for now goodbye goodbye